Dotnet Rocks episode 734 with guest Chris Sells. Recorded live Thursday, January 5th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Welcome to .NET Rocks. I got a cold. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that's the first time we've opened the show with a nose blow. That's pretty good. Man, it's the time of year here. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Let's not focus on that, however. We got a show to do. Oh, yeah. Let's get into Better Know Framework. What's your framework today, my friend? Well, you know, uh, occasionally I like to go spelunking over on CodePlex to see what new projects are, are you know, uh, most popular. And there are cool things over there. How about this? A virtual router, Wi-Fi hotspot for Windows 7 and Windows 2008 R2 software virtual router. And get this. Not only is it free, but there's no ads it's not ad driven. It's huh. a, basically an open source .NET based virtual router. And, it, and when you say router, you mean like a NAT router? Yeah, it, it turns your it turns your laptop into a Wi Fi hotspot. Okay, yeah, a NAT router. There's routers and then there's routers, and you know you got to be clear. Most people don't actually need a router; they need a NAT. Let me read the description to you. Virtual Router is a free open-sourced software-based router for PCs running Windows 7 or Windows Server 2008 R2. Using Virtual Router's users can wirelessly share any internet connection, Wi-Fi, LAN, cable modem, dial-up, cellular, with any Wi-Fi device, laptop, smartphone, iPod, touch, iPhone, Android, phone, Zune, notebook, wireless printer, etc., these devices connect to virtual router just like any other access point, and the connection is completely secured using WPA2, the most secure wireless encryption. Nice. That's a cool little project. Cool little project. Of course, it's free, and it's at virtualrouter.codeplex.com. 787,000 downloads. Wow. Yeah, since November 18th, 2009. And it's That's currently awesome. point- I now I'm really excited about this. This is a piece of code you want on your machine. Yeah, totally. It just and makes it dirt simple to share your internet connection or somebody else's internet connection with you. What I read is there are, you know, there are freeware programs like this out there, but they're all ad generated, right? Ad revenue generating tools. And so, you know, it's constantly sending data to some company somewhere that's spying on you. Right. Well, have you noticed you notice how many hot spots these days, like in airports and things, are sponsored by Google. Yeah. And if you actually go and read that agreement you have to click on to make the web connection work, the mm. one that nobody actually reads, mm-hmm. it says, we log everything. That's right. Everything. Yeah. Because actually what they the reason they're paying for it is that they want to know where you go. That's right. It's not that they necessarily want your passwords or anything like that. They just want to know where you're going. They want to watch what you're doing. Yeah. They what like you're it. saying. They just like to see it. I can foresee a whole new class of programs coming out that essentially do what uh, cloud programs do, uh, you, you know, services do that are, you know, quasi-free but 
track your data, mm-hmm. yet you are able to run them on your own infrastructure. So, you know, the the cloud is very nice, but as we discovered in that panel discussion we did at Dev Connections, it's not as reliable as the stuff that you can do yourself. Hardware becoming more and more cheap, uh, bandwidth becoming more and more cheap because of the cloud and popularity of those kinds of things. It's becoming more and more feasible to run your own data centers. So I think you're going to see a whole class of these private cloud applications running in the future. Absolutely. Well, and, it, and it also recognizing we're not the primary audience. We are far more technically savvy yeah. than regular mortals. And we're more concerned about these things. I, I just had this conversation yesterday with an, uh, a fellow IT person. And we we're saying, you know, we know all of this is going on. Right. And we use VPN connections and encryption and so forth when we want to move sensitive data around. Yep. But most people don't know, don't care. And even when you tell them and show them, right. don't know and don't care. Yeah. All right, Richard. Well, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 727, and that was the show we did with Steve McConnell. Okay. If you recall, that, mm-hmm. and it's been a few years since we talked to him. I thought it was a really fun conversation. This is a comment from Ass of Stone. It's a bit long, but it amused me, so that's important. <laughs> uh, he started off with a little pseudocode, uh, parallel dot for each sub new of T Carl comma Richard, <laughs> totally rocking host point to console dot right line. Hi. <laughs> so he actually said hi to us both at the same time. It was a good one. That is a good one. Parallel execution. Okay, that was my best and geekiest attempt at not greeting one of you before the other. That's great. I know that made <laughs> that string array still names you alphabetically, but that doesn't count, right? <laughs> I wanted to thank you for totally rocking, for making my commute and sometimes jogging so much fun and educating. I love this show and the tablet one and haven't missed an episode since 2009. Fabulous. As an agile coach, I love this show, and he's talking about Steve McConnell's show, yep. in particular, like all shows about methodology, and in particular, I took to heart Steve's rule about private branches, that the more time you spend branched away from the development branch, the less chance you have of ever rejoining. I have already passed this on to the teams I work with. My only gripe with this show was when Steve said that Scrum emerged as a best practice. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it is a great methodology framework, but in my opinion, Scrum emerged as the best funded, having an entire industry of overpriced certifications to push it. It is important that would-be adopters understand that and appreciate that some Scrum trainers have a vested interest in justifying the thousands of dollars they spend on the 16 hours of training they receive. Personally, I believe that many companies out there that have decided that their methodology will be Scrum would be better served with other methodologies such as Extreme Programming or Kanban or a tailored Agile method that suits the organization's behavior. You know what? I can't argue with you, Asif, that you're right. Well, I think the big thing that happened with Scrum is that we came up with really great curriculum that people were willing to buy. And so we tend to sell what, you know, people want a turnkey solution. Just tell me what to do. Right. They don't really want to think through how do we work most effectively, but it's a different issue. Yep. Anyway, Asif's not done. I want to finish off his his point here. And then finish we'll, him we'll off. Wrap this up. Uh, anyway, thanks again for making my week twice a week, Asif. Uh, P.S., why did you stop the corny jokes by the announcer at the beginning of each show? <laughs> they were some of the funniest lines I got to hear. I particularly love the one of Carl's daughter who said, replacing Carl Ryan, I think, 
ending with, and now, the man without whom this announcement would not be possible, <laughs> Carl Franklin. Yeah, my dad. <laughs> bring it back, bring it back. Don't take it away from me because you don't know what it means to me. Nice line from Queen there. There you go. Love of my life. Too wow, funny. that's cool. Uh, and Asif, yeah, thanks for the great comment. I totally agree with you there. And uh, Carl has to explain why he cut the jokes. Uh, you know, it just became, we, we spent more time at publish time coming up with stupid freaking jokes <laughs> than we did publishing. Publishing is a drag and drop operation. But before we can do that, uh, I get a call. Lawrence is like, need a joke, man. Oh, geez, I'm at dinner. You know, that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, while it was fun, you, you have to schedule time to write jokes, and that is not fun. Writing jokes is hard, man. So, 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 I'm sorry, I can't, I can't be quiet anymore. You can announce me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care, right? But I have to jump in, right? When you mandate fun, it is not fun. Yes, this is what I'm saying. Yes, like, you know, flair at all those silly chain restaurants. Right. Or that really gets to me. I'm a big fan of, what is the name of that ice cream place where they make your ice cream for you based on the ingredients? That would be a cold slab or cold stone creamery or something like that. Cold stone. And so cold stone, um, they, the deal is that they will sing if you tip them. Not in Waterford, Connecticut. Because, uh, oh, really? yeah, they tried that. And Waterford people are just too grumpy. Well, that's the thing. I, I got to the point where I would, you know, the first couple of times it was a novelty. Then I stopped tipping them because then, you know, it's forced fun. What fun is that? Right. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to tip you and don't sing. Please don't sing. And they were like, oh, thank God, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I love it. That's right. And that was the voice of Chris Sells that you just heard. Before I introduce him, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, such as those you hear on this show. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial totaling 200 minutes. They have a full curriculum on software practices, including courses on design patterns, test-first development, object-oriented design, continuous integration, and Scrum. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce Chris Sells. Chris Sells is VP of the Developer Tools Division of Telerik Corporation. Prior to that, he was Principal Program Manager on the Visual Studio team at Microsoft, working on Metro-style apps for JavaScript. Prior to that, he was Program Manager for Microsoft Connected Systems, He's written several books, including Programming WPF, Windows Forms 2.0 Programming, and ATL Internals. In his free time, Chris hosts various conferences all over the world. More information about Chris and his various projects is available at sellsbrothers.com, S-E-L-L-S brothers.com. Welcome back, man. Hey, how are you? Just fine. So, no more Microsoft. Gee, I never saw that coming. It's funny. Everyone that hears I left Microsoft was like, what? You? How could this be? You left Microsoft? What does that mean? Ah! And I'm like, you know, Microsoft was a fabulous chunk of my career. It absolutely was. And I, um, I can't say I enjoyed every minute, but I will say that um, I learned a ton and it was a bunch of fun and yeah. I really loved it. 
but it was it's like a third of my total career, right? I, I had a life before Microsoft, and it is my hope and dream to have a life after Microsoft. <laughs> so, Chris, what are you doing these days? Well, um, as of um, Monday, Monday was my first official day um, at Telerik, um, which I had from my house. So it, it hasn't. I don't consider the job really started. I mean, at this point, I'm I'm reading um, email uh, newsgroup archives and Outlook, and you know, uh, sending around emails saying, um, "Hey, who are you in my team? How does yeah. this work? Who do you work for? Uh, how do which products do I own? Oh, really? That one? Okay, that's good to know." So you're trying to feel your way around. I'm trying to feel my way around, and I'm filling out a bunch of paperwork, and you know. Uh, but mostly, uh, I've been um, spending uh, a bunch of time talking to um, uh, my boss, the executive uh, vice president of the um, uh, developer division, and then his boss, who is um, uh, one of the two co-founders um, of uh, Telerik, um, a lot about you know what keeps them up at night, how, what they really want me to do, how they want me to fit into the organization and um, trying to make all of that work. And then uh, next week, um, I'm, is, as far as I'm concerned, my first real week, because I'll be spending it in um, the headquarters of Telerik, which is in Bulgaria. So, uh, in fact, the capital of Bulgaria, Sofia. And I don't think you've ever been there before. I have. I spoke at a debreach. Oh, that's right. You did way back when. I yeah. think I've got photos of us rather impaired together. Yes, I seem to remember <laughs> some some <laughs> rakia moments there. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Some very violently ill moments from rakia and cherry flavored vodka, as I recall. Which oh, is wow. Man. That Not recommend. Poland, that was Poland. It? Oh, right. But it was that. Well, it was that same kind of party every night kind of. Um, uh, conference tour. It all kind of blended into one big alcoholic mush. I know it is, a f and it is embarrassing too when you when you you can't remember if it was Poland or Bulgaria where I got drunk on cherry flavored vodka. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a once a year thing, you know. I show up in some European country, and um, uh, and you know, I am not. I am no longer mentally or physically prepared for that kind of. Uh, so what kind of things do you think you're going to be bringing to Telerik? I mean, uh, um, several people we know have moved there uh, recently uh, from Microsoft. And, you know, you were working on Metro stuff before uh, in the Visual Studio team. Are you um, planning to do that kind of stuff at Telerik? I know that they are working on Metro stuff. I think they are. But I don't really, I don't really know. Uh, so uh, the, that's a good question, Carl. So what what the hell did they hire me for? Or or to frame it another way, Chris, why the hell did you have to go all the way to Eastern Europe to find someone who would hire you? Is that what you're really asking? <laughs> uh, not quite, but if you like, sure, why not? <laughs> so um, Telerik is, uh, I believe it is um, uh, not tooting uh, a horn um, unnecessarily to say that Telerik is world famous for their set of controls. They are. But they... They have WinForms and ASP.NET and MVC and WPF and Silverlight controls. And these are top-notch controls. Um, you know, I've been spending a lot of time working with their product for the last month as I prepare for this job. Um, 
And it is amazing to me the depth and breadth of the set of controls that Telerik um, has built. I uh, was blown away. It, you know, it takes, but it takes a half hour just to click through the demo and mm. see the configuration options and just see the range of controls and you're not there, you're not done yet. Then that's, you know, that's pretty impressive. And I am blown away. One of the reasons that we liked them in the first place is because they were starting fresh with .NET. They didn't have legacy code that they needed to port or, sure. uh, you know, use architecture for or be backward compatible with. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, just this morning, I was having the conversation um, with one of the co-founders. And he said, hey, you know, I, one of the things I really need to do, and, you know, I knew this, but was we really need um, to understand the right direction to go with Windows 8. And one of the things he said for me, he said, and does that mean that we port our existing controls over? Or does that mean we start from scratch? Mm. I thought, wow, yeah. to have that kind of commitment to the platform, to be able to say, hey, if the right answer is we're going to start from scratch to build the best kind of controls that we can build, then that's what we're going to do. Right. Well, and, and it's an interesting question, too, with, because Microsoft's clearly outlined three different ways to build apps for Win 8. Which one do you like? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and I think that we, I think it's pretty clear. I don't think I'm, I'm uh, you know, telling secrets out of school here when I say, yep, Telerik will be there with a set of, of Windows 8 controls that target, you know, XAML and HTML. Okay? Yep. Yes, we, were, we are going to be there. Now, the third platform I think that Richard is referring to, and maybe you can you can tell me if I'm wrong, Richard, is DirectX. Right? right. Oh, yeah. Does, you know, the traditional business model, right, the controls model of Telerik fit into DirectX? I don't think so. I think it's a different place. I think but, it's a different kind. Yeah, and I'm struggling with that because this, I know a lot of C++ folks that have basically been denied the ability to utilize the control model to be able to utilize XAML as a whole and it comes to them in Windows 8 and I just wonder if they aren't going to break out that all of a sudden you're going to see an awful lot of talented programmers who prefer to program in C++ cranking out code in a hurry hmm. no no I, I, no believe me I when I say XAML controls I mean a set of controls that you can get to from VB C sharp and C++ okay absolutely I think right. C++ Needs to be one of the one of the languages we target. So, I think of XAML C plus plus as part of the XAML platform. It's all but well and I, fine. No, but doing directly to anybody's going writing directly to DirectX is not using conventional controls or doing something strange. They're playing a game. Exactly right. Right. Anyone who's doing DirectX wants to own that whole environment. They don't want anyone helping. Um, right. So, so you know, I don't see us building a set of controls for DirectX, but no. I could absolutely see us building other kinds of engines um, or assets that would be useful to game programmers. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework 
to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Back to the core question here. Is there a right way? I mean, it seems apparent you're just going to cover all three from a business perspective, but you don't have any favorites? Oh, you're talking about um, whether I like managed, native, or... Um, HTML. HTML as a favorite. Well, so I've spent the last year, um, you know, getting up to speed on that whole HTML environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is amazing to me how powerful that platform is. There's almost no user experience that you can't build with HTML and JavaScript and SVG and Canvas and et cetera, et cetera, right? Yep. That set of web technologies is amazing. And also, um, uh, it is being optimized up the yin-yang by all the platform vendors, not just Microsoft and, you know, IE9 and IE10 and Metro-style apps, but just everywhere. At this point, right, if somebody came to me fresh out of school, and said, hey, I'm a client-side programmer. What should I pick up? What should I learn? I, I would find it irresponsible not to say, oh, you should pick up HTML5. Right. I mean, it's true if you're starting from scratch. That, that You're starting from scratch. Because it has such a wide reach. And I don't think that the Win8 scenario in there is the compelling one. It's everything else. It's the mobile and browser story that's compelling. Well, so it's interesting. From that point of view, it's not so much about I can take my, my code and make it run everywhere. Um, because when you're talking about client-side UI, you, even if it's built with HTML5, if, you're, if you want to target the devices, you want to make it look like Windows 8. Right. Right? You want to make it look like iOS. You want to make it look like Android. Now, if right. you're ju just targeting the web, then you, know, you, you can make it look like however you want. Right? I mean, but the, it's really the, about the skills, right? That if you have HTML5 skills, you can apply them to Android development, to iPhone development, to WinPhone 7 development, to Win8 development. Like the, the skill is portable. Yeah, not only the skills, but the techniques and the programmers and the assets, you get a lot of leverage mm -hmm. um, by going to that platform. Now, on the other hand, um, uh, as powerful as that whole platform is, I still... Uh, really love, you know, .NET. I still really love C-sharp. I still really love that whole tooling environment. I like when you press dot, that a reliable list of things that I can do is going to pop up for me, right? I like that yeah. whole environment. You know, Microsoft has done an amazing job making that set of tools work for HTML and JavaScript, but this is a, a set of technologies that have been all built kind of independently of each other and jammed together and sometimes you see where the seams are. Whereas in C++ and XAML and Visual Studio, and it all feels very seamless. It all feels like it's built together. Because, of course, it was. It was. Chris, have you got a chance to look at any of the, the Telerik source code to see um, how things were architected? And I know that's really where, what you like to see and, and where you like to uh, apply your knowledge. It's interesting. Um, I definitely am a very technical fellow. Um, the interesting thing about Telerik is that they have such a breadth and depth of developer talent and a wonderful way of bringing new developer talent into the company 
that I, um, that's not my first focus. They are an award-winning um, controls vendor. And just by looking and using their code, I'm already uh, much more confident in the quality of it than I would be walking up to some random, you know, set of source code. Based on that, do you feel like that the the question of should we start over or should we port what we have? Do you still not yet feel qualified to 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 think about an answer to that question, or do you have an idea? Well, I have to admit, right Monday I took off my first day, so nice. Tuesday and Wednesday I really worked there two days, <laughs> and I do have my email working, but I do not yet have access to the source code. <laughs> okay. Now, that, does that mean I'm going to look at it? You know what? Some new VP shows up in your organization, um, and, y- you know, you want to make sure that he can lead you and he's got inspirational things to do, um, and he, he will point you in the right direction, and you can be confident and follow him. Do you really want him messing in your day-to-day? Do you want him checking in? Do you want him showing up at your your team meetings? Do you want him... I mean, what do you want from a from a VP? Yeah. Do you want the guy who's going to, you know, randomly check in code, or do you want the guy who's going to provide the vision and the leadership? Yeah. Now that said, uh, you know, I'm who I am. Yeah. Right? So I probably will look at the source code. If I was in your position, I'd just be curious as to you know how things are architected. Uh, maybe looking at the source code isn't the obvious way to figure that out. Maybe it's the, uh, you know, sitting down in an architectural meeting or or that kind of thing. But um, I don't know. That's that's maybe I'd I'd be curious. I, I definitely am curious. The but you're right. I mean, the things that I find most important are you know how are things put together? How are they structured? What are the dependencies? Right? Because as you know, if you look at the Kendo UI stuff, which is a total other division from mine. There's a bunch of really great HTML5 controls and, and activities going on over there. And I want to say, well, how much of that can be leveraged for Windows 8? And if I do that, how much can I reuse? How much do I have to rebuild to take advantage of Windows 8? Um, there's all kinds of interesting things there. And at that point, the architecture you care about is, what are the dependencies? Yeah. Right? How does it come together? Right? How do you architect things so that the Kendo UI team can go and do their mission, which is the entire web, but we still can easily, you know, use it in a Windows 8 way without disturbing that team and their goals. Those are the kinds of questions I'm looking at. And then the other thing that I really love to look at, and this I have looked at and will look at more, is it's less how it's built that's important to me and more how it surfaces to the developer. What does it mean, how it surfaces to the developer? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I have um, long been a proponent of, you know, based on what the API is, what are the concepts behind things? How right. is it really built? Right, because there there is no more reliable way to understand how something works than to understand the API and all of the kind of unstated concepts behind that API. And so I have been programming against the Telerik controls to get my hands around them, mm. and I will continue to do that. That I will be doing, because I still have to write code. Yes. I mean... I mean come on now. Right? Because we won't be shipping my code. Well, yeah, you, must write, you must write code. I mean, 
Yeah, now you're just talking crazy talk. Of course you're right, Code. I'm, I'm guiding a team of people doing developer tools. I am a developer. I care how the developer tools work. Right. In fact, I have pages of notes about the various products that I've been using over the last month to prepare for this job. And I can't wait to talk to the various team leaders so I can say, oh, but when I tried to do this and program that and did this and blah, 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 I had this problem. And wouldn't it be cool if? And I can't wait to have those conversations. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Chris, do you know about our .NET Rocks fan club? I didn't. Well, we started uh, a fan club where people sign up for the purpose of giving away stuff. And not only are we giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection on every show, and, and that's what we're going to do right now, but we, once a year, are going to give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky fan club member. So, wow. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And we haven't yet determined what exactly we're going to give away, but we know we're going to spend some good money on it. Uh, and today's winner of the Telerik Ultimate Collection is John Maloney from Billings, Montana. Woohoo! Golf clap, please. Golf clap. <laughs> and John, just for being a fan of .NET Rocks, your Telerik Ultimate Collection is on its way to you. Uh, if you'd like to be a fan, go to .netrocks.com slash fanpage.aspx or go to the main website and click on the great big win free stuff button in the top right. And that's it. So isn't that cool? That's very cool. And not only is it very cool, but I'm happy to know that um, uh, you're giving away Telerik stuff. Yeah. That's cool. It's good. Other sponsors are going to be chipping in as well. But uh, sure. for the next month or so, it's going to be all Telerik stuff. Cool. Well, you know, it, it sounds like uh, you have um, some really fun times ahead of you. I mean, this is this is a really exciting time with Windows 8. I. I I, I can't think of any place that um, I would rather see your talents going than to be to, to carve out the new stuff, you know, whether it's Microsoft or Telerik or, or you know, just working on, you know, the, the next thing seems to be what you really thrive on. I, I You know what? I do love that. I got to spend the last year kind of um, working on the uh, app model for JavaScript. Uh, applications, Metro-style JavaScript apps, and the templates. And I got to work with a set of very smart people across a very wide uh, developer tools and, you know, operating system um, set of organizations. And it was a ton of fun to then culminate all of that at Build, to get up and give that presentation um, and talk about what the tools are and how they work and, and the templates and the app model and how it all comes together and just watch people just really love it. All of that was, it was an amazing experience. It, it, there is no, I, that is priceless. Yeah. I, yep. Do you have a sort of vision of the kinds of apps that make sense in Metro around this? Like, I think that's still the thing we're struggling with is just, you know, what, other than as a launching system, what is a really good Metro app that's going to need a suite of controls? Yeah, that's an interesting question because as I think about the direction to take Telerik into the Windows 8 control space, I think about kind of two paths. I think of, well, you know, what is the traditional enterprise developer going to want here? That's right. the traditional Telerik um, customer. As And also, these are the folks, right? These are the .NET folks. These are the Microsoft folks. Microsoft has been pushing on the enterprise thing for a long time. Right, so these are the Microsoft developers. This is where they are. 
they're in the interest high space. And not only that, but over time, um, enterprises have been pulling in um, these kind of um, interesting devices into their um, businesses just because they're, they work so much better for them mm-hmm. than just regular PCs. Right? They've been pulling in you know, phones. They've been pulling in tablets. And they haven't really had the Microsoft support in this world right. that they've really wanted to. Right, so they've had to turn to Android. They've had to turn to iOS because they don't really have what they need from Microsoft in this enterprise space. Um, but you know, it is definitely the case that enterprises want to do this kind of thing, and I see that growing over time. So you you definitely have to think of well, Windows eight enterprise tablet controls, all of that makes sense. But then there's a whole other market, a potential market, where Microsoft is really banging on the consumer drum. Right, they really want to take Windows eight head-to-head with the iPad. Yes. And so what, what does that mean? What are the set of controls that um, consumer apps build uh, need? And are they, how are they different from the enterprise controls? Or is it, is it, a, you know, is it a, a slightly bigger set? Is it a completely different set? So that's a whole set of questions to ask. Well, you must have been thinking about this quite a bit working on the Visual Studio team for Metro. You know, what controls are we, are going to go in the box? What, uh, controls are the third parties going to do? That seems like that's probably one of the first meetings you guys would have at Microsoft. At this point in the ecosystem of the team, it was very much about what is the consumer experience? Yeah. How can we architect the application platform to optimize for the best possible consumer apps? The fastest, the most responsive the most fluid. Um, and then secondarily, it was, okay, great. We've enabled the developer to build fabulous apps. Now, is there anything we can do to make it a more pleasant experience? And when it came down to, you know, we're, uh, developer versus customer, where customer was the end user actually running the app, Microsoft, we, we almost always made the customer decision, right? We want them to have the best experience. And if that has, if that means that it's harder for the developer, then that's, then so be it, right? It's going to be harder for the developer. The interesting thing about that particular set of decisions is that, you know, Microsoft, like every organization, is resource constrained. There's only so much they can do in every release. And what that means then is that there's all kinds of room for third parties to, right. um, fill in fill those gaps. And of course, over time, Microsoft fills those gaps, um, right over you know, other things that third-party developers have done. So third parties have to be, you know, out in front, pushing on new things, new ideas. Um, that's just the game. That's the, the market we're in. And that is fun because that means you constantly have to be on your toes. Yeah. You constantly have to be innovating. You constantly have to be trying crazy, weird, new things that you have no idea are going to work or not. And that is a fun place to be. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. 
Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package. So You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. What are some of those crazy weird things that you've tried that uh, that you can talk about? Maybe that were too crazy or weird. Uh, well, so, yeah, uh, well, let's see. Crazy weird. Yeah. Actually, um, at Telerik, I've got a bunch of crazy weird ideas that I'm still trying. <laughs> I'm just getting off the ground. And I, w- I plan on um, um, telling the world about them once, they ha- once I am a little further along. As of right now, they're kind of half-baked, and they just make me seem silly. Okay. Chris, you've implied to me then that Windows 8 is very much a consumer version of Windows. And I, and I think we've talked about that before as well. But I'm, I'm fascinated at the prospect of enterprise tablets because this is something Gartner's talking about. And, and I still haven't got my head around it, much less what a, what a control means in that scenario. Because to me, the only thing, I mean, tablets can view data. That's fine. But the only thing that I think tablets lend to the equation that's new, that isn't being done very well, is collaboration. Oh, see, I, I disagree. I think that um, tablets have um, just as much utility in the enterprise space as they do in the consumer space. Because fundamentally, I believe that tablets are about the screen. What can we do with the screen? Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell, my, I tell my sons, right, they grew up in a world where they, couldn't, they can't remember when there was no internet. There was no way to right. reach out to their friends. There, were no, there was no way to reach out to the, the sum total human knowledge right at their fingertips. And when you're in an elevator, you actually had to just stand there and think. <laughs> <laughs> right. Remember when you could have an argument in a bar that couldn't be resolved? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. This is an old people thing, right? Remember when, when I was a boy. When I was a boy, we'd have an argument and didn't know the answer. Both ways, uphill. <laughs> had to get up and move across the room to change the channel. <laughs> we, we looked up facts in books. Actually, before long, you're going to be saying, we had this device called a remote. <laughs> yes, I think it's going yeah. away, too. We didn't just talk to our televisions. That's we just right. wave but, our hands. We had to hold something. But that's the thing, right? This is what I tell my sons. I say, when you have children, they will not believe that there was ever a time that you couldn't just reach out and touch the screen directly or reach out and talk directly to your computer or just wave your hands and it would be able to see and know what you meant. We already expect it. Right. I mean, we're already moving to a place where, where touch is so much more efficient than the keyboard and the mouse. And I would argue that in the exact same way that consumers, and that's what we call them, right? Consumers. They want to consume, right? They want to bring in their content. That's probably an 80% use case, right? They want to listen to their music. They want to read their emails. They want to surf the web, blah, 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 right? But about the other 20% is they want to produce content, right? They want to reply to their emails. They want to create playlists. They want to have, you know, uh, even build a presentation or edit some video. And you can go a long way by optimizing for the common cases and putting them out as choices, as touch for your consumers. And guess what? That exact same interaction model works great in the enterprise. You can boil down a lot of what people do day to day into a tablet experience. 
where they're largely consuming information. And then when they have to produce information, when they have to do data entry, you know mostly what it's going to be, right? Imagine a point of sale system, very targeted system. Imagine your doctor reading your case notes, reading your medical history and entering new things that you tell him because you're not feeling well. Imagine your dentist or the FedEx guy or all of these people in the enterprise running their businesses. The tablet, 7-inch, 10-inch, these are, um, these are fabulous uh, form factors for a large amount of what they have to do day in, day out that are much easier to use and much better suited than a PC with a keyboard and a mouse. So I see tons of utility in the enterprise for this form factor. I see the upside potential in using the tablet as a remote control, speaking of remotes, for for software that's running on a PC. Oh, it's interesting. Um, have you used the Xbox Companion app on your Windows Phone 7 yet? I have not. This was actually um, uh, one of my best friends in the world, Don Box. He works in the Xbox division, and his first team was building this app and the architecture and the communication protocols underneath them, and it works, that allows you to run an app on your phone that controls your Xbox. And by that, I mean it essentially gives you the missing keyboard and voice input, right? So you can talk to your phone and it will find content for you, or you can just type, or you can say, hey, I want to watch Police Academy, and it'll look up in your set of media providers that you have on your Xbox, and it'll say, oh, well, it's available on Zune, and it's available on uh, Netflix. Nice. Which one would you like to watch? And then you say, well, let's see, Zune costs me $6 or $10 or whatever it is. And Netflix, I pay, you know, $8 a month for all I can eat. I'll choose the Netflix one. You click a button. It makes your Xbox start playing whatever um, installation of, of uh, Police Academy that you care to watch at that moment. It's, it's pretty cool. That is cool. And so, um, and then a lot of times, it's funny, I find myself, uh, I, I have always been a full screen kind of fellow. I mean, long before it was cool in Metro style apps, I run all my apps, almost all my apps full screen. And then I do a lot of alt tab. What I've been doing lately is taking advantage of how great my phone is for a bunch of things. And so I run my PC and whatever programs I'm in as one screen. And then I'll use my phone as a different screen. I mean, because my phone and my PC are both synced to the cloud with the same data source. Right. Changes I make in one are reflected in the other. Yes. Very cool. Well, and I am fascinated at integrating the television into this equation, too, because everybody's definitely pushing on this now. I mean, I think 3D TV is a joke, but what Samsung's doing with just simply, they've got a PC inside those televisions now. You plug an Ethernet connection in, and it'll draw Netflix directly. It'll access Facebook directly. Like, there's, there's an awful lot there. I think everyone's trying to grab onto that. Well, it's interesting. At, at this point, I, I'm a I'm a hundred percent behind that. To me, a television is a large screen that I see a distance away that has good speakers in it. Yeah, and that I have a PC to control. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I I have basic cable, but I've determined I watch it for like presidential inauguration speeches, the Super Bowl, and you know storm warnings. Right. And other than that. I do not use my cable connection at all. Instead, I'm using Netflix and Hulu and Zune 
and my Xbox, and it's all run by my Xbox. And what's an right. Xbox? It's just a PC. Yeah, it's, the only problem I have with the Xbox now is that it's quite an old PC. That's true. Hopefully, they'll come out with a new one. It is like, I mean, how old is it? Isn't this like a seven-year-old PC or yeah. something? Yeah, those are 700 megahertz P3 class chips in that box. Wow. Wow. They yeah. are old. And it still does pretty damn well. Chris, we have a uh, question from Twitter, and I feel like I got a, an idea already what your answer is going to be, but I want to ask it anyway. From Chris Stewart, he says, how do they, Telerik, plan on convincing developers to use Kendo UI over open source alternatives? What are the pros and cons? Ah, that's a good question. Carl, I'm interested in what you think the answer is. Yeah, I knew you would be. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's uh, particular to Kendo. I think the the bigger question is, why not use open source products over products that have a company behind them? And I, and I, I don't have an answer for that. I, I guess it depends on the product somewhat, but but um, I think it also depends on uh, you know on the, the the consumer of the product and what they're comfortable with. Do you do you use open source products? It's, it's interesting. I do. I generally use the best of class product that I'm familiar with. Whatever that happens to be. Almost all of them have a you know use so much of it for free. Or when you use want to use a lot of it because you know you you've fallen in love, you pay. And let me give you an example of this. I recently, so I've recently moved from like my whole life to the cloud. Exchange Server and Dropbox um, is pretty much you know where all of my data lives now. And one of the things that I didn't like about Dropbox was um, they do encrypt it on the way over and they encrypt it on their servers, but they can also their employees and therefore the government can unencrypt it whenever they feel like. Right? That's just how that goes. Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because the conversation we were having at the beginning of the show, um, before we introduced you, uh, where I mentioned that there's, so, I, I think you're going to see this class of apps that are cloud, you know, based things, but they run on your hardware. So you have control over your data because privacy is an, is an ongoing issue. And, you know, if you're, if you've got medical records on Dropbox, is that, considered irresponsible but um so i actually i actually have been writing and uh am writing a an alternative to dropbox that does the same kind of web-based you know file back automatic backup syncing and point-to-point file transfer but uses your hardware uses your web servers oh that's so. interesting so it's an on-premise dropbox that's right. It's an intranet or enterprise level Dropbox. I think that's that's an interesting um, uh, alternative to consider, right? I mean, uh, Windows has this idea of syncing settings and syncing folders, you know, between a server and a and a various client PCs. Right. It's never seemed to work in my experience. Yeah. So the idea with, of something with the, you know, enterprise class security and privacy for the intranet, I think, yeah. is very um, interesting. Of course, Microsoft's solution to this particular problem is SharePoint, right? Right, right. Microsoft's solutions to many problems is SharePoint. So, there you go. The thing about SharePoint is you start out having a problem you think you can solve with SharePoint, and then you have two problems. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for rephrasing that old regular expression joke. You're totally yeah. right. I, I agree. I've never fallen in love with SharePoint as popular as it no. is. SharePoint so anyway, makes you cry. 
Yeah, very much. Okay, so now popping popping the stack, right? So my example was, well, so what do I do to solve my problem with unencrypted files in Dropbox? And the answer is, well, you want to do client-side encryption. And so now I've got various solutions. The two contenders are one that's commercial and one that's open source. And you might think, well, I trust the open source one the most. But as it turned out, I trust the commercial one better because I trust the one with the revenue model. Because they have a built-in incentive, whereas the open source project does not. Yeah, who knows? It could continue to run forever and be, or it could just die tomorrow, right? Whereas this commercial one, they are making money. As long as they make money, then things are good. And that's, that's wonderful. Now, of course, if they go away, then I'm left with a bunch of encrypted files and what the hell do I do? Whereas with the open source one, hey, I can get my own private build forever. But in general, I find that um, I personally tend to go towards the commercial thing for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I trust things with a revenue model more than things without a revenue model because of what you said, right? The built-in incentive. And two, there's all kinds of polish that you get from a commercial piece of software that you don't tend to get from an open source piece of software. Not because the open source software developers are any worse or the commercial ones are any better, but only because the commercial ones, the commercial developers are paid to do the stuff they don't want to do. Whereas the open source guys get to spend their time. It's fun for them, right? They only want to do the fun stuff. They don't want to do, if they don't feel like doing the polish, then they don't have to. So for me, the commercial products tend to be more polished. And so I'm not judging anyone who wants to use open source. Open source is a monster in this industry. And believe me, um, at Microsoft and at Telerik, we know it's a real competitor. So how do we compete? We want to make money. Great. So we have to set the pricing properly. And what? And then we have to say, well, based on that amount of money that we want to charge people, what, are, what is the value we provide? We provide that polish and that support. And I'm learning over time how amazing Telerik is at both of those things. So I don't have any problem with our ability to build a customer base on something that we sell against an open source alternative. Oh, that's a that's a good answer. I you know I I also find that it also depends on what the product is. If it's a tool I'm going to run once and throw away, it probably doesn't. You know, there isn't as much incentive to buy it. But then again, those programs that are like that aren't usually very expensive either. So, well, so it's interesting. You just reminded me of a pet peeve, um, thing that something that really bothers me. Um, and that is the people who implement try before you buy. Mm-hmm. There's a right way to do that and many, many wrong ways to do it. Oh, yeah. In my opinion, Dropbox is fabulous at try before you buy. Dropbox is you can have this data spread across as many platforms as you want. You get all of the functionality. It just works up to, I don't know what it is, five gigabytes. I don't know what the limit is. But yeah, something like that. And after that, you want to keep more data? No problem. Here's how much it is for the next year. Here's how much it is for the next year. Yeah. Right? That is a fabulous model. Because what that means is, hey, damn, I'm at five gigabytes already. I, I can't live without this. I better pay. Right. I need this in my life. Right? Whereas the try before you buy guys that are like, 
well, you can do everything except the thing you actually want to do yeah. that lets you decide if this is an important piece of your life or not. That you have to pay for before you even know if it's going to work. Right? That's wrong. Yeah. The wrong way to implement try before you buy. What you want is, let me give you all of the functionality up to some limit. Maybe it's a time limit. Right. Maybe it's a capacity limit. But let me, let me make you love me. And then, if you want to keep me in your life, you have to give me money. <laughs> that. <laughs> right before you buy. Uh, Chris, I love your bluntness, man. It's very refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, the other thing that we talked about with this, um, it, this, uh, project, this virtual router project that's on CodePlex, that a, a lot of the other ones that you download that are open source have all these, you know, spyware things built into them and you know i say spyware maybe one step down from spyware it's sort of like you know you're signing up for it so it's not like it's something that's going to lodge itself in your your computer and be hard to get rid of for you know they they just want to watch what you do and they want to report back and and they want to change your default home page and they want to change you know they're going to bug you with things for ads and stuff like you, that you constantly first, you you were right the first time that's spyware i don't care if you volunteer for it or not that is spyware yeah and it has no place on in my life i will live without software that does that it really is I annoying will. i had to get rid of a, a tool that does um um multiple point downloads uh, because of that you know there's places where you can download files from on the web that have multiple multiple servers or whatever and it figures those out and when you're downloading something, it, you know, creates, I don't know, five or six different threads and down, it splits it up into five pieces and all that stuff. And I've actually written software like that, and it's pretty cool. Sometimes it works fast. Like uh, client-side BitTorrent, right? Yeah, well, sort of. Not, not exactly the same way, but, you know, it does speed things up. But it wanted to change, you know, change my homepage constantly in Internet Explorer. Says, uh, this guy's trying to, like, change. It would constantly be bugging me and ass, so I just took it off. Yep. You just live without it. Live without it's it. Just the pain. On the other hand, if they had done that and they had um, that, that piece of software had done exactly what you wanted it to do and made itself an important part of your life such that you really didn't want to live without it. And then they said, oh, 30 days is up. That'll cost you blah, blah, blah to have a lifetime subscription to the software. Or thank you very much for trying. You would have been much more likely to give them money. Yeah. Yeah. Because by then you're like, oh man, I really love this piece of software and it integrates so nicely and it just sits there and doesn't bother me at all until, you know, I need it and boom, it does a good thing. Right. I want it to, I don't want it to leave. I don't want to get rid of it. Yep. As, of, as it is now, all it did was annoy you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Chris, uh, I, I can't wait to see what you and the, and the boys over there and Sophia come up with for your, uh, your Metro offerings or, uh, whatever you bring else you bring to the table at Telerik, I know it's going to be great, and they're very lucky to have you. Why, thank you very much. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening, and remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions. 
providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a 